0: Welcome to the LDS Mission Cast, a podcast to educate and inspire in the great cause of missionary work. This is your host Nick Galletti. Some of the episodes of the LDS Mission Cast feature content for those preparing to serve a mission. Some are directed towards those that have returned home or are wanting to be more inspired in member missionary work. Episodes like this one are unique. And that we occasionally need to take the time to learn the gospel to learn our history better so that we can be better members of the church better ministers to those around us coming up on june 1st 2018 there will be a celebration in the conference center in salt lake city to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the 1978 revelation on the priesthood or official declaration number two This could rightly be called the restoration of the opportunity for priesthood ordination to all worthy males and the opportunity for all people to receive all temple blessings regardless of race or color. It's not uncommon for people to feel marginalized or hold issue with the past policy of the church that was in place, and this is certainly an issue that missionaries in the field face on a semi-regular basis. In an effort to explain or even justify this policy, It's also not uncommon for members of the church to say things about this issue that are either wrong, possibly hurtful, incorrect, you name it. So we will spend some time in this episode learning the history and coming to some understanding of this often controversial topic. I know in the South on my mission this issue of race and the LDS church came up on a regular basis and was something I had to face almost every week. The information that will be shared by our guest today is vitally important in our society if we're going to be successful in building bridges and bringing souls unto Christ and His Church. Our guest Russell Stevenson has dedicated years of his life to the study and understanding of the issues surrounding race and the LDS Church. He talks about how his mission experience inspired this work and informs much of what he does in his academic studies today after the interview stay tuned for some concluding thoughts from me on this issue as well as some other exciting things that we have coming up at lds mission cast here we are our interview with russell stevenson Our guest on this episode of the LDS Mission Cast is Russell Stevenson, otherwise known online as the Mormon History Guy. Russell's an expert and a historian in the area of race and the LDS Church and also in African relations in the Church. So we're going to be talking about what some consider to be a very controversial issue and also a timely one with the coming forth of this 40th anniversary celebration by the Church with the removal or the the cessation of the priesthood and temple ban in 1978. So, welcome Russell. It's always good to be with you, Nick. So, we we've we talk a lot offline about different issues and and so we're going to just kind of start off with a brief history on you and kind of your own missionary experience because it does impact some of your chosen vocation and area of study. So let's start off real quick with kind of your introduction in life to race issues in general. Absolutely. You know,
1: in in some ways, I've had a a rather distinctive upbringing in the sense that I was born and raised in an area of the country that is still technically considered to be the frontier by the U.S. government. Right, We're talking rural, white, western Wyoming. Um, (laughs) 2,000 people. I think there was maybe one African American student in all of our area, to my knowledge. Right, mm-hmm. uh, definitely a, a distinct minority. It was the kind of community where, you know, with with due respect and love to my you know my, my fellow Wyomingites, uh, there was enough racism that was built into our discourse that Caucasian kids would call other Caucasian kids the N word. Right, that was really kind of a a du rigueur insult. Right, and even though. The number of African-American students around, I mean, you could probably count them on one hand, right? If that, and that may be generous. So I was already kind of born and raised in this context where if you're going to be having a, a substantial information about peoples of African descent, it would be have, it would have to be through the television, right? It would have to be through popular media of some kind. Add to that that, you know, in my family, you know, again, we we came from, you know, heavily white areas... Uh, areas that in general did not have a lot of immediate uh, interchange with peoples of African descent. Well, my grandfather, as it happens... He was a police officer for the LAPD uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s. Over the course of his work, he ended up absorbing and adopting certain attitudes towards African-American peoples. Now, he was never known to use the N-word, but his views on African-Americans, they were not a secret, right? At at one point, somebody said, hey, if I were to date an African-American gal, if she had served a mission and she had a temple recommend, would you be supportive of our getting married? And he would say... I do not feel comfortable with that. But at the same time, on one occasion, one of his sons said, do you want your grandkids to see black people in the way that you do? And he said without even a moment's hesitation, no. So he recognized how his experiences had informed his views, while at the same time acknowledging that he didn't really want those views being passed on. It's not the ideal. Right, it's it's not who he should be, but he felt like he was too old to really change in a substantial way. So you asked how how my missionary efforts in are yeah. influencing you know the way I see the world and way and why I got into race. You know I served in San Diego, so you know it was a fairly diverse community. Uh, I served hmong speaking, the hmong which is King, a
0: language most people don't know exists. Yeah, it's it's uh, relatively obscure,
1: at least uh, uh, for Americans. It's from Southeast Asia, Laos, Thailand. The Hmong served on the American side of the Vietnam War and as such were refugees in the United States from about 1975 onward. So I was working almost entirely with Hmong refugees or descendants of refugees.
0: Now, if I remember correctly, that wasn't your mission call initially,
1: right? Not initially. Uh, Initially, I was called English speaking. Uh, About seven and a half months into my mission, my mission president asked me to learn the Hmong language and to basically make it a Hmong mission. You know, I, I managed to learn the language well enough to where I could be an interpreter at the temple uh, towards the end of my wow. mission. And I, on one occasion, I, I had to translate for a paramedic. So, you know, I, I learned it enough to get around and to be That's somewhat pretty competent. pretty impressive. That really um, is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I had some uh, additional help, right? It was... <laughs> some uh, gift of tongues kind uh, of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, right? It was not one of those things I expected to be doing on my mission. Over the course of my mission, I... I got to know, you know, various members of the Hmong community. As I was interacting with them, for the first time in my life, I saw what you might see as uh, societal discrimination, societal marginalization. You know, they found themselves living in little enclaves. They didn't have access to resources. They were compelled to kind of live by the rules of another society. And that society was not necessarily welcoming to them. And that was kind of my aha moment, where I said, Well, So I had been raised in this heavily white environment. You know, African-Americans existed in my mind in the media and elsewhere. But with the Hmong community, I said, well, this this can in fact happen with a particular community. And if it happened with the Hmong community, then goodness, it it can happen with any number of other communities. So I go on to BYU. I get my degree in, in history. And I am now at Michigan State University getting my PhD in African history specifically, uh, working with Dr. Wando Achebe. And I've had a really interesting life path when it comes to going from, you know, frontier rural America to, you know, now going to Nigeria on the regular and speaking an indigenous language there.
0: Yeah. Look at you, man. Learning all kinds of obscure languages that you just probably didn't grow up thinking we're gonna enter your life in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's
1: it's funny because you know, one would wish that my my talent learning languages, you know, tended to be more uh, you know, more typical. Like I could learn Portuguese or German. And yet whenever I try to learn a mainstream language like French or German or what have you, I can't do it. I can only learn the you know the the relatively obscure ones. So yeah. it's it's both my
0: blessing and my curse. <laughs> well One of the things that is interesting is, as I've done this podcast for a little bit now, is when I talk to these guests that have gone on to, I'll say, be a specialist in certain fields, they still have a way of showing how their mission impacted their decisions. And you've obviously shared very clearly on yours how you've seen these marginalized cultures and things like that. And when we talk about race and the LDS church, we're talking about something that is, again, controversial. But it's one that has a very complex history. So before we get too deep into the history, what are some of the challenges that you've seen, not only just in your own mission, but in missions across the world, as missionaries try to talk about or address this issue with different people in different areas of the world?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. because, you know, missionaries are going throughout the world, Latin America, Africa, Asia. In almost every setting, uh, you're going to find yourself interacting with somebody who does have a different ethnic background from uh, you know from yourself, unless you're serving in a heavily, heavily Caucasian community and, and you're also a Caucasian missionary, but typically that's not the case. It's becoming very rare. Yeah, it's it, this is almost always going to be a relevant issue, and I, I'm glad that you pointed out the complexity of it, because we talk about race in the LDS Church. That's not just African Americans in the LDS Church. You're talking about racial identity in general, you know, Native Americans— Asians, African-Americans, Africans, et cetera, et cetera. So what are some of the challenges that we face? I mean, part of it is that for a variety of reasons, we as Latter-day Saints have become generally averse to racial conversations. Maybe it's because we feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's because we don't want to feel like we are complicit or feel like, you know, we're having the finger pointed at us. That's a pretty natural human response well, it's an uh, but, ugly issue. You don't want to be found guilty of it. Right. right. So, you know, you're going to do anything you can to, uh, to try to keep your distance from it. And So we end up using language like, okay, I don't see color. I'm colorblind. Everybody's the same to me. Well, the reality is that in American society and in a lot of different societies, one's ethnic background is almost certainly going to be a part of their lived experiences. So we as Latter-day Saints need to own that and acknowledge that. On missions and elsewhere, so I mean that would be my the first challenge that I I would point to is simple simply uh, an awareness that race has been and continues to be an issue in a variety of different settings in American in American life and in theaters throughout the world. You know, the second challenge that I see is not only do we have a lack of awareness, even if we are somewhat aware about, you know, issues regarding uh, discrimination, uh, issues regarding marginalization, we have not really made a systemic effort to understand how to deal with race within our theological vocabulary, even though I think that you can do so, you know, using LDS ideas and using LDS doctrines. When we're interacting with somebody of African or Asian descent, even though we we may be aware that, you know, they face discrimination or face stereotypes, we are just so afraid of saying something wrong that we end up forgetting who we are as individuals and we're more concerned about not stepping on minds than we are about actually having a human-to-human conversation. So we, we need to work through that if we're willing to have, you know, effective and humane missionary efforts.
0: So moving forward now, let's, let's get to the history of particularly the issue that I would say gets the most heat, and that is that there was a ban on the priesthood and temple ordinances for those of African descent. So what do we know? And, and I have to say, serving in the South— This came up all the time. So So it's relevant. It's it's, clearly relevant. It's absolutely relevant. It's still relevant today. And it's still something that people ask questions about. But what do we know is true versus what are some of the folk histories that we've often repeated not knowing the actual history? Like, Because I know for me, I know I forwarded stuff on my mission simply because it was something that was told to me and i just said okay well that must be the answer why else would we be why else would this person say it if it wasn't true that was very lazy on my part and i admit to that fault but what do we know what does the documentary record show with respect to the issue of this priesthood and temple ban
1: that's an excellent question as well. And I'm glad that, you know, you acknowledge that, you know, you found yourself in a place to where you were sharing information that wasn't necessarily correct. I mean, I have to admit that even I, as a young person, you know, I had heard, you know, folk explanations of, you know, how the races so-called came to be. And I accepted them as being correct, right? Because – You know, why wouldn't they be? You know, my uh, so-and-so believes it, my Sunday school teacher believes it. Sure, why not, right? So, you know, these folk explanations end up taking on a life of their own. Fortunately, as a trained historian, I I firmly believe that we can get to the bottom of these kinds of folk stories, right, and these kinds of uh, accounts that end up getting absorbed into the LDS consciousness. So let's talk about what
0: we know, what we don't and what we can do in that area that we in, in which we don't know, right? missionaries are not supposed to be historians. Right. And they're not supposed to give lectures on this. So there is, what we know about this is not always what we need to teach because it is complex. And, and right. a discussion is not the time for that. Right, right. So, you know,
1: obviously, you know, we have to, on the one hand, lean towards transparency, right? Lean towards sure. uh, acknowledging our past in, in every way that we possibly can. And at the same time you know, respect the needs and the interests of the person that you're talking to. And, you know, the demands on their time, right? Because, you know, they want to know how is this message relevant to my life and I didn't have you come to my door to share with me an hour-long discussion on race relations in the <laughs> right. United States, right? That's, that, that's not a fair expectation to place on people. Let's go back to a moment in 1847 because if we're going to be talking about the beginnings of the priesthood bound, uh, that's the best place to begin, at least as far as the documentary record is concerned. Uh, you know, there have been some scholars who try to date it to before that time. But for the purposes of this podcast, let's say I don't find those claims to be uh,
0: particularly credible. Well, should we back up and say that there were African-Americans that were ordained to the priesthood? Yes. Yeah, we, we should say that. There
1: you know, there was a small number of African-American men who had been ordained to the priesthood, you know, throughout the 1830s and early early 1840s. And the most, served missions. Yes. The most famous of these is Elijah Abel. You know, he ended up serving at least two missions for the LDS church. Uh, he was eventually ordained to be a to be a 70 and you know he gained considerable renown as a missionary uh, in ontario where you know you had a fairly large uh, runaway slave population you know you also have walker lewis who gained a reputation for being incredibly faithful there was you know even one individual who said that he was an example for our more wider brethren to follow Right, Would more, that
0: more whiter? Yes, isn't that. that a you know a nice <laughs> fun colloquialism from the 19th yeah. century?
1: You know, he he really did present a moral a moral exemplar for many other white Latter Day Saints. In 1847, Latter Day Saints by this point they had been expelled from Nauvoo. They were on the way west. There was an individual named William McCary. You know, he had been a, a former slave. He was a musician and he was something of a con man. Right, he was a real showman. He loved to go around and put on these shows. And ingratiate himself with various Mormon communities. And eventually he even took his show on a on a bigger stage and he really gained a reputation for playing the part not of an African American man, but as an Indian, right? They you often refer to this as maybe playing Indian or a kind of putting the Native American identity on a on a theatrical spectacle. So as he's interacting with various Latter-day Saints in winter quarters, you have various people who are beginning to see it's okay, well, here we have this this guy and let's he claims he's native american but he's also we think african-american and to make matters even more contentious he had married a white woman lucy stanton so already he's putting the white latter-day saint community in a state of unease brigham young and a number of other church leaders ask him to come and account for himself tell us about you know tell us who you are And over the course of the conversation, Brigham Young makes it very explicit that he supports black ordination to the priesthood. And that's not something that is often brought up in our discussions about the history of African-Americans and the church, is that at one point, Brigham Young quite explicitly, quite clearly supported black ordination. He said that, you know, we are all of one blood. And he even said that some of the church's best members were black, and he cited and you know, of this uh, Walker Lewis, who, uh, you know, who was the example for his more wetter brethren to follow. So we have Brigham Young saying that in March of eighteen forty-seven, Brigham Young leaves. He goes to Utah, or at least, you know, at the time it was, you know, just the, the Great Salt Lake area. But then William McCarry he begins to engage in what he probably thought to be a, a kind of a you know spiritual polygamy, and that involved having serial affairs with various white Mormon women. This outrages the Mormon community and they expel both him and Lucy Stanton, run them out of on, on a rail and you know, McCary and Stanton go off and you know, live out the rest of their lives, yeah. right? They do their they do their thing. It is then when Parley Pratt comes to the scene and he gives the first on-the-record comments connecting African identity to priesthood uh, worthiness. By February of 1849, we have Brigham Young getting on board as well. And that's probably because he had found out about you know, Walker Lewis's son, Enoch, having a child with his white wife, and for Brigham Young, you know, being married to you know a, a black man was one thing; it's quite another to have a child. Right? To him, he, he saw that as really a, a great crime. So we know that by eighteen forty-nine, Brigham Young had gotten on board, and then by February eighteen fifty-two, Brigham Young was being very public and being you know, very open about his support for a priesthood ban on peoples of African descent. That's what we know. Now, do we know exactly when Brigham Young flipped? Do we know when he began to adopt this, you know, pro- exclusion uh, policy? or why, really? Um we, we do can know, assume Well, we do have records where in which he states his reasoning, and which is what? So in February of eighteen fifty two and frankly a little bit earlier as well, he gives a speech before the territorial legislature. And in that speech, he says, That because Africans and African-Americans, the people, you know, he identified them as quote-unquote Negroes, because they were descended from Cain, they were therefore cursed as pertaining to the priesthood. So as far as Brigham Young was concerned, it was because of their lineage as the children of Cain. Now, that's what the documentary record says. Some Latter-day Saints, they say, okay, well, that's the reason that Brigham Young gave to it. We think that the reasoning Brigham Young used was wrong, but that somehow in God's create purposes that he had another motive, right? That he had another reason for it. You know, that goes beyond the extent of the documentary record, right? Any Anytime we begin going beyond what is stated in the documents, then historically speaking, you're not on
0: sound ground anymore. So as missionaries, we can say that in the early 1850s is the earliest record that we have that there was essentially a connection between priesthood worthiness and descent. Uh, I would say Even I, 1847.
1: Yeah, 1847 is the okay. earliest known comment we have from anyone that we might call general authority on the record connecting race with priesthood worthiness. Between 1830 and 1847, obviously you have racial discourse. Joseph Smith makes some racial remarks at one point. You know, we even have, even have him supporting slavery in 1836 for political reasons, almost certainly. Uh, but by 1844, he had uh, supported an anti-slavery uh, platform for his presidential campaign. We have this early time period in which you know racial, like what it means to be a black man in Mormonism is somewhat ambiguous, but there is no evidence for an outright priesthood ban. By 1847... With the arrival of William McCary, that's when we see the first document attesting to this.
0: Is this kind of one of those things where years pass? I mean, can, do missionaries have to say between this time and 1978, the policy of the church was essentially that blacks didn't have the priesthood? Elijah Abel's continued to have it. It wasn't taken away or anything, but they, no one mm. knew was able to participate. And as temples were, as temples were constructed— they weren't allowed to participate in that either, which is often not talked about. Right, as part of the history, is is the, the temple component.
1: Yes, yes, and that's one reason why, and we'll get into this in a little bit. That one reason why we should not use the analogy of the Levites. Right, sometimes I hear Latter Day Saints say, "Well, it's it's kind of like how the Levites were the only ones who could hold the priesthood uh, during the Old Testament times." Well, it's one thing to administer the ordinances of the tabernacle and the temple, but all of Israel were able to receive the benefits of those ordinances during the time of the priesthood and temple bans I mean it wasn't just a matter of peoples of African descent not being able to administer temple work it was a matter of they they could not even they couldn't it was go a matter of own. not even receiving temple work right they could not be sealed uh, they could not receive endowments uh, for a time they could conduct baptisms for the dead okay but that changed around the early 1970s. So we need to be very particular about what this ban meant, and you know, in the, the impact that it had on peoples of African descent.
0: Were they allowed to be baptized as members of the church? They were allowed to
1: be baptized as members of the church, and absolutely. they did. Yes. Okay. Yes, even during the time of the priesthood ban. I mean, Len Hope is an example of that in Alabama. You know, we have Darius Gray. He was baptized in the 1960s. You know, you have Joseph Freeman, Eugene Orr. They all were some of the founding members of uh, what came to be known as the Genesis Group. It was and is an official church arm for uh, servicing the needs of peoples of African descent. And these days, it's more of like a multicultural church arm.
0: Yeah. So when we're talking about this, we, we shouldn't ever say there wasn't a ban because there was a ban. Absolutely, There's enough of a documentary record to say this wasn't just a folk policy that came up out of obscurity. There was definitely something clear that started. We then, I, again, I don't want to fast forward too much because, again, the documentary record is important in understanding some of the complexity. However, again, for missionaries, absolutely, we do understand that in 1978, this was prayed about by President Spencer W. Kimball. And we have official declaration number two that is in the back of the Doctrine and Covenants that essentially extends the priesthood. And but when does the temple component connect to that, or is that when it connected?
1: That, that's that's when it's connected. I mean, if you look at the precise language of official declaration number two, they do reference temple blessings. Okay. Uh, but the focus is certainly on priesthood ordination. But you know, you're absolutely right that sometimes in our discussions about this we leave out the temple component. And sometimes when I'm talking about the priesthood ban, I even reference it as the temple and priesthood ban rather than the priesthood and temple ban because, frankly, I'm almost inclined to see the temple component as being more impactful on peoples of African descent because you know one might try to make the argument, I wouldn't ever use this argument, but some do. Like, okay, well, this is just the administering of the church. It's, again, similar to the Levites, right? And I would say, well, whether you can be sealed to your spouse or not, in Mormonism, that's a big deal. That's significant. It's the biggest deal. It is, it is the crowning symbol of our membership. So I, I think that you know, when we try to downplay that, uh, we do so at the cost, you know, not just of the historical record,
0: but also at the cost of the lived experiences of peoples of African descent who could not have those blessings. So again, when we talk about this, we have to be transparent. Otherwise, yes. I, I would be willing to be so bold as to say we'll lose the spirit.
1: I think that's a fair comment because we know that the more we try to be authentic, the more we try to, you know, speak the lived and true experiences of the Latter-day Saint faith, the more the Spirit will abide with us, right? And we also know that if somebody comes to us with a question and we end up engaging in hand-waving or we try to dismiss the issue entirely, then we're not actually ministering to them. We're not serving them anymore. You know, we may be doing something else I and mean, we, we may be servicing our own comfort or servicing our own ego or or something, but we're no longer serving them. And when we are not serving,
0: I think the Spirit definitely leaves that relationship. Yeah.
1: Everything we do should be in the spirit of service.
0: Sometimes missionaries, and understandably, we use metaphors to try and explain some of these these things that are more difficult because it helps us maybe give us perspective on these sure. issues or— Help us at least couch it in a way that's a little bit more understandable. Sometimes, though, we use metaphors that are actually more damaging. Right. What are some of those that you may have encountered as, as things that we should avoid?
1: Right. And this is something that we see in a lot of different gospel topics, right? You see it when we're talking about the law of chastity. You see it when we're talking about race. You can even see this in, in the context of consuming good media, right? And we've all heard these analogies and you almost, you have to use analogies to some extent. I mean, sure. Jesus did, right? We Parables, yeah. that's all these are. So the question we should ask isn't, should we use analogies or shouldn't we? Rather, how good or how effective is this particular analogy? One analogy that I've heard, and I've referenced this already,
0: is comparing the priesthood ban to the Levites holding the priesthood. Or any other subject. Is there a precedent for this? Is there a historical precedent for comparing anything else to oh, this? No, oh, to the priesthood ban. I mean, the,
1: the main precedent that we have is comparing it to the Levites, right? Or another example that we have is, you know, comparing the gospel being taken from the children of Israel to the Gentiles in Acts. That's another uh, frequent one. And, you know, that one— Depending on how you read the text, there may be a little bit more substance substance to it because you know you can see following the decision to take the gospel to the to the Gentiles, there are a number of Israelites who were not okay with this. And what that tells me is that any kind of Gentile ban that existed existed because. Of this sense of a collective exclusionary mentality amongst the Israelites, right? They were preventing themselves from enjoying the blessings of having the fellowship of the Gentiles at that time. I personally don't use that analogy, but I know that President Hinckley has and others have. So, um, you know, that's. Um, but my
0: point is: is there is there any comparison? I, I, it's, yeah. It almost seems dangerous. Is there to merit? Try it. Yeah. Is there is there any kind of other version of this happening anywhere else where we can say, "See, God does this at other times." And, and I think that my experience with it so far is we don't need to justify it mm. by, okay. by using a, yeah. a another example in history that was similar. It almost seems to cheapen what people experienced. In my experience, what the
1: African-American community and the African communities have seen and lived is not like what any other community has experienced in world history the extent of the slave trade among Africans. We're talking about 100 million African lives being trafficked out of Africa. We're talking about discrimination particularly geared against the African American community throughout the United States. You know, yes, you see racism going in a number of different directions, but being an African American in the United States came with a particular set of burdens and a particular set of experiences. Trying to use analogies to explain this away, it's dangerous territory. Using it's, the precedent
0: approach is just not the great way to No,
1: about no. It. It, I mean, think of trying to come up with a comparison for the Holocaust, right? We'd say, all right, well, it's, it's just like this. No,
0: there is nothing like the Holocaust. And what does it do to even make that comparison?
1: It it offers us very, very, very little. It certainly does not help the person that you're talking to, especially if they're an African American, because even if they're not a historian, even if they've not spent their lives reading the documents and reading the records, they know this stuff intuitively. They know it in their bones yes from generation to generation they've heard the stories of their ancestors they've heard the stories of their fathers you know being pulled over by a police officer so it it's not something that we should try to dismiss or explain away through these kinds of you know, ready-made analogies that we you know, that we feel that we need to use in, in order to protect our sense of what Mormonism is
0: what are essentially maybe the best approaches what are some of the things that we could or should say and maybe a kind of a I want to say a short format. Right. First and foremost, I think the principle is
1: meet the needs of the investigator. So to the extent that this is something that matters to them, spend the requisite time needed to address that issue. At some point in the conversation, either through fellowshipping or through missionary interchange, this topic should be addressed. If only because we don't want them to be blindsided. Sooner or later before baptism or after baptism, this will come up. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and under what circumstances. So do you want to control the circumstances under which it comes up or do you just want to uh, let somebody else discuss it who doesn't have all the information, (laughs) right? That, That can be dangerous. So I would recommend any missionary who is, you know, who has to deal with this on the ground, be ready and willing to engage this
0: because, frankly, the person hearing it they will need it either sooner or later. So the next step then would be, do we point them to the church's essay on race and the priesthood, perhaps?
1: I think that the, the essay on the on race and the priesthood is an excellent point of departure. That being said, again, when you're interacting with somebody on the street and you say, hey, you know, you, you, know, you should just go read this essay on LDS.org— <laughs> They, they don't care about all that. They're probably right? not going to engage unless you give them a reason to. They, yeah, they're, not, they're probably not that interested, but they do want to hear an answer from you because you are the ambassador, not LDS.org. You're the one who's been ordained to be a missionary. So I would say you should know the contents of that essay well enough to where you can engage these questions in a variety of different venues— Know who Elijah Abel is. He is referenced in the Gospel Topics essay. Know that the priesthood ban did come into being in the late 1840s and early uh, early 1850s. Know that Brigham Young is the one to more or less have implemented it, and you can maybe say probably P. Pratt too. There are any number of different facts that can be helpful to you in talking about this on the streets with your run-of-the-mill individual who wants to know about this. So that's an excellent point of departure, but understand that it's not something that can do the work for you. You need to have the information in your head, and you need to be
0: willing enough and engaged enough to use it on the streets. Now, I, again, I, I jump over to the fact that in 1997 through 99, when I served my mission in the South, this was still an issue that was very much alive, but we didn't have the resources that we have today. Now, you you wrote a book on Elijah Abel's life, and and it's a very good record of, of kind of coming to learn his experiences. Is his life kind of a, a good example for missionaries to go to and say, this is an example of someone we could share, his his lived experience? Because he, he had a hard time with this. You, you know, I had an experience
1: sharing his story in a couple different settings. I had just given a presentation on Mormonism in Ghana for an academic conference. And during the Q&A session— a professor from a local university, she raised her hand and she said, how could a person of African descent ever be part of an institution where their very bylaws say we don't like you? And, you know, that's, that was a pretty pointed question. And I shared the story of Elijah Abel to her and said, well, you know, it was not always that way. Right. At least we have evidence that Joseph Smith was good friends with Elijah and that he was very supportive of Elijah holding the priesthood. And he even you know, told other members of his circles that they needed to back down uh, from, you know, from trying to you know, really dog on Elijah holding the priesthood or, you know, or receiving you know, the sacred rituals of Mormonism. And immediately the tone changed. The ambiance changed. Once she knew who Elijah was and knew that there was a time when peoples of African descent could enjoy institutional equity with other Latter-day Saints, she was much more willing to engage, right? She was much less confrontational. So I think that the story of Elijah can be a powerful tool. And again, he's referenced in the Gospel Topics essay. Right. So, you know, we might call that a safe zone, if you will, right? <laughs> um but you know his life is really remarkable. He served two separate missions. He was a powerful preacher even though he was not terribly literate. And you know, we have excellent records from someone who heard him preaching and said, I, "I felt the spirit of the Lord descended upon him so powerfully that she she eventually converted and and joined the faith and she remembered Elijah for years and years for his ability to preach the message of the restored gospel to her." So that's one story that can uh, that can be used. You know, but there are other stories as well. I mean, the story of uh, Havikio Martins, who was, you know, in in Brazil. He was an early Latter-day Saint who joined before 1978. You know, there is a story of Len Hope. You know, he was a, a member of the church in Alabama, and eventually he moved up to Cincinnati. And he attended year after year, even though he did not have the priesthood. A personal favorite of mine is Solomon Chambers. You know, he was a a freed slave who moved west. He became a Latter-day Saint in Utah. And he was very enterprising, and he became quite wealthy. He was certainly the wealthiest African American in Utah. Granted, that was a fairly small data set. (laughs) But Booker T. Washington visited Utah. Uh, You know, Booker T. Washington was, you know, the great founder of the Tuskegee Institute, who was committed to providing African Americans usable skills after emancipation. He meets Solomon Chambers, and refers to him as a colored Brigham Young. (laughs) Interesting. So, even with all this, though, Solomon Chambers was uh, not allowed to enjoy priesthood equity with his fellow brethren, and yet he continued to attend and he found great meaning in the Latter-day Saint faith. Now, let me be very explicit. I share these stories not to communicate the message, oh, well, because these individual Black people
0: it know, makes it all joy. okay.
1: Everything's cool. <laughs> why Why is everyone all bell-aching about it? No, I I am absolutely not saying that. What I think it does speak to is it speaks to the level and depth of their commitment and the depth of their conviction in the fundamental messages of Mormonism and of the restored gospel. You know, if any missionary goes out there and says, oh, well, you know, Elijah Abel, he served two missions, so everything's cool. Well, we we can know with 100% certainty that if i were there i would say alright elder i i think you're you know i think you're crossing a line there but i do think that these stories can serve as powerful messages if used in the proper context
0: yeah i think if an investigator who felt something about the church and and the message resonated with them but they had a hang, hang up on this reading these stories might be the way for them to see that there there was a way to overcome those struggles that they had and come to a faithful point where keeping the covenants that they had made were relevant, were powerful. And, right. of course, nowadays we know that, that they do have that same equity in the church.
1: And, you know, I, I think we should also be, uh, be aware that there is such a thing as the dangers of a single story, right? No one African-American represents the entirety of the African-American experience for, for anybody else. I mean, Elijah Abel is Elijah Abel, Right.
2: That was end. his experience, right?
1: Walker Lewis is Walker Lewis. That's his experience, and we can use these, and you know, maybe they will connect with people. That was my experience in telling Elijah's story in many cases, but maybe they won't. And if and if they do not, then it's not the fault of the person you're talking to that they do not, right? It just means okay, that story doesn't maybe mean as much to them as it means to somebody else.
0: And maybe listen and see. Well, what? Why didn't that story connect with you? What? what what's still holding you up? What? You know, listen to them.
1: Yeah, that, that is the number one thing that a missionary can do when we're talking about somebody who's having issues with any of these, uh, any, any of these topics, whether it's race, whatever it may be, listen. That's why you have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> so you can listen twice as much.
0: Yeah. So, again, we're, we're dealing with a situation where members of the church today, there are many African Americans that are being baptized and are faithful and wonderful members of the church. And particularly in Africa, there we see a lot of church growth, new temples, and even President Nelson went and just did a recent tour there. How is it that people in Africa, who I would say on some level have a, a, an even different lived experience with this, how are they traveling that faith right. journey? So uh, whenever we start talking about African peoples,
1: I, I always think of a talk given by Chimamanda Adichie, It's a famous one given, you know, as a a TED talk and it's called The Dangers of a Single Story. And she's speaking specifically about generalizing about African peoples, right? How, you know, there is no single story defining Africa. It's neither a poor country nor is it a rich country. Uh, Africans are neither saints nor are they devils. They are individuals, complicated, both morally amazing and degenerate right they can it runs the gamut just like you see amongst any other country right right you have lots of different kinds of people in Africa just as you do have you have lots of different kinds of people in the United States so I'm leery about speaking about African Mormonism in general okay however you know I, I have conducted some oral history research in Nigeria and I've asked people you know probably about a couple dozen at this point how do you feel about the priesthood bound? And I made it very explicit. I said, hey, you can say, you know, say whatever you want. If it bothers you, that's totally okay with me. I just want to know your experiences. And what I found was, I mean, granted, this may have been, you know, them watching themselves because I was this white guy. And if that's the case, then, you know, there's not too much I can do about that. But very few of them expressed any kind of anxiety about the priesthood ban. And most of them ended up saying something with the effect of, well, this is God's timing. God's prophets will speak and issue the word of God according to God's timetable. Wow. That was overwhelmingly the case, at least within my very small data set. I will continue to conduct these interviews and, you know, maybe that data will change, but so far that's been the story that I've seen. Now, why is that as it happens, this kind of dynamic is not distinctive to Mormonism. It's really speaking about, you know, African and African-American relations more broadly. And for people who've seen Black Panther, you see some of this play out. Because of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, you see African-Americans, Afro-Brazilians, you know, Jamaicans, etc., they are laboring under a different kind of set of lived experiences than Africans have. All of them have in some way been severed from the connection with their ancestors. They're not able to identify a homeland. They can't really say, I am of Nigerian descent, or I am Igbo descent, or I am of Yoruba descent. The best that they can say is, I'm a black Brazilian, or I'm African American. But beyond that, I don't really know who I am. Whereas Russell Stevenson, I mean, I can— date myself all the way back to Sweden, I can tell you exactly where in Sweden my family came from. I can tell you exactly where in England my family came from. So for African-Americans, the priesthood ban often felt like one more layer on several other layers of legal, social, cultural discrimination. It's part of a system, right? And that's why it bothers African-Americans in ways that it would not bother Africans in many cases. Again, I don't want to, sp- don't sure. want to speak for the entirety of the African experience because I do know Africans who do have issues with this. I do know Africans who have said to some extent that this, this divided the church and they, and they longed for the day that the priesthood ban would be lifted. But that's one reason is that Africans have always been able to identify who they are, where they came from, what their identity is. So for them, the priesthood ban was something distant and removed. It was not part of this broader system of oppression. I mean, the church wasn't even in sub-Saharan Africa for the most part until, um, until well after independence for many African countries. South Africa might be one exception to that. Uh, but on the main, sub-Saharan African countries never were able to associate the priesthood ban with
0: these layers of oppression. Got it. Okay. That's a lot of information. And hopefully within that, we've given some missionaries out there the opportunity to at least have some starting points, some things not to do, but as well some things to pray about and, and come to some understanding about these experiences. I would say that on this particular issue, again, it's best to listen. Right. It's best to try and understand why someone that brings this up might have an issue with it, because we can't assume right. why that might be an issue. So,
1: And, and I would add to that, first listen and secondly, do your very best to prevent, to do your very best to stop yourself from coming up with these off-the-cuff analogies, off-the-cuff defenses, folklore, whatever it is that you're inclined to use to try to explain this stuff away. Because whatever it is, whatever your theology is that's guiding how you understand this, this is not nothing. This is deeply substantial. And it has affected peoples of African descent, you know, really the world over in various ways. And that can't be denied. So however you approach this, I mean, this is something of existential importance for uh, Africans and African-Americans, and it deserves to be treated as such.
0: Excellent. So thank you again for coming on. And and we want to encourage people. We'll put links to the Elijah Abel book, the posting for this at ldsmissioncast.com and encourage people to do their study of the church's essay on this topic, which we'll also put a link to. It's important, especially if you're going to serve in areas where there's a a higher density, perhaps, to become even more aware of what's in that essay and to be able to speak about it conversantly. So thank you again, Russell, for coming in and talking about this, and uh, hopefully this has given people plenty to think about. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Nick.
2: From the Latter-day Lives Podcast, I'm Sean Rapier, uh, reporting live for LDS Mission Cast. And this week, my guest is the writer and director of the new film about Emma Smith, uh, which is called In Emma's Footsteps, Brittany Wiscombe. And Brittany has a story for us. Brittany?
3: So I, a few, uh, it was about maybe two years ago, we were working on another film and we were doing what's called the final mix, uh, which is you put together the sound, the music, you know, the dialogue. And so you're basically stuck in a little theater room, a small one, as this is going on. And uh, we had um, our composer there, and he's not uh, LDS, and I wasn't sure if he was or not. But then he asks this question. I can't remember what the question was, but it was basically an opening to talk yeah. about it. And and I um, and I asked, "Oh, are you LDS?" And he's like, "No." And I assumed he was just because everybody else was working on this project, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. And so, but I I was just like so excited. I'm like, oh, this is one of those moments. He's pretty. He's pretty laid back. He's pretty, you know, nice. Whatever. I, I can talk to him about this. So I start saying, answering his question or whatever we were talking about. I think I was explaining what prophets were. And it just tumbled out. It was just horrible. And I was just like, "Why can't I like connect my brain and my <laughs> tongue and have this come out a little bit more gracefully than it is?" And um, and then I kept going because he said something about you know other religions and kind of I guess comparing them. And uh, anyway, I, it just went downhill. And he's very nice. He probably thought I was very strange. I kind of laid low for a while, and you know, and uh, you know, we still work with him. Um, but it was kind of one of those moments where. Why on earth was that? I better prepared for sharing the gospel, or even just answering a question about the gospel, without making a fool out of myself, possibly reflecting bad on on the church. So, yeah, that was
2: a a hard pill to swallow. And yet, I'm sure I'm sure it was wonderful. I'm sure from your end, because I've had times where boy, I've been teaching gospel doctrine or speaking or whatever. And at the end, I go, what the heck did I even just say there? That makes (laughs) no sense. And I'll have people afterward uh, come up and say they appreciate it. So I'm sure it was not as bad as you think it was, but I do think your message to be prepared, (laughs) be ready, but more importantly, you opened your mouth when you felt that you should. And I think that's the most critical part of all this. So.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it is, and it does get easier. I think, I hope.
2: (laughs) Yes, and that's the other part. The more you do it, the better you get. The film is called In Emma's Footsteps. It opens at Megaplex Theaters in Utah on June 1st and at certain select theaters in Arizona and possibly in other parts of the country. Go check out inemmasfootsteps.com. And Brittany, thank you so much for sharing this and for Latter-day Lives and for the LDS Mission Cast. I'm Sean Rapier.
0: In one of the last areas on my mission, a new bishop was called, Bishop Bonchon. While he had a rather Cajun name, he was also of African descent. The four missionaries serving in that ward, including myself, along with many others, were excited to see him called as he and his family were outstanding Latter-day Saints and an example of the goodness of the gospel. This call to the bishopric would also be a great step towards abolishing a very common perception in that part of the state of Louisiana, namely that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was a white church. Now, coming from San Diego, I hadn't really heard much about white churches and black churches, except when reading about the days of segregation. This concept was largely foreign to me personally, but this was the South. While segregation was technically illegal— there were still lines that divided the people's perceptions and behaviors. Now, this was 1998, just 20 years ago. This wasn't that long ago. But it was, it was difficult to observe people living within these race lines. But it was also hard to see some of the members of the church, some of which we felt were otherwise upstanding members of the community and of the ward, decide that at the same time the call came for Bishop Bonchamp. It was time for them to move to Mississippi. Now, I share this story not to insult or enrage, but to simply give some context to the lived experience that some still face in the church, and only 20 years ago, in some parts of the United States. When sharing the gospel with others, we can't really know what their lived experience is, or what impacts them, or how they might feel about a particular issue. As we interact with others, regardless of their ethnic or cultural background, it's important to remember we are all children of God. I, for one, am looking forward to this celebration on June 1st, where we not only celebrate the opening of these most sacred blessings, but also the acknowledgement that God speaks through his prophets, and that we have a prophet on the earth today who is traveling the globe to share his testimony of the living Christ. It will also be a time to help me see that we still have room to go in building a unified and Zion community. From time to time, I have the thought, if I was to go back and be a missionary now, what would I do differently? For my mission, in light of this topic, I think I could have made more of an effort to help shape a more Christ-like outlook on this issue. Namely, again, that we're all children of God and that no matter what our history or the backgrounds we bring to our relationships, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has an open door for all. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of LDS Mission Cast. Next episode, we have some really cool guests. We have Jacob and Christine Pinkston. Jacob is an amazing story of perseverance and trust in the Lord. The Jacob's story involves overcoming social anxiety and depression to serve a two-year mission, only to have that accomplishment sidetracked by an injury that sent him home early to recover. Now, he's still on a mission, but I'm not going to give any more away of his story. So tune in next time to get the rest of the story on the next episode of the LDS Mission Cast.